Chapter 13. Reshaping a City. Forgetting the F in PFI. I am not in the habit of watching Conservative Party conferences. In fact, apart from the one in 1992, I have never had the pleasure before or since. On this occasion, I was at home ill or something, and there was nothing else on the telly, so I got to see the love machine that was the grey man of TV spitting image, Prime Minister John Major. Among the usual stuff from the podium, he mentioned a couple of different things that attracted my attention. The first one was a typically cheap political stunt in the denigration of the county of Humberside, which was not too popular with the people around here, who thought they were either from Lincolnshire or Yorkshire. Who can imagine Sir Len Hutton walking out to bat for Humberside? I can see his smirking face now, no doubt thinking of some marginal seat or other. The second point was far more important. He highlighted the fact that the tax collected from the British people would in future predominantly have to go to the exponentially increasing demand for pensions and the NHS. So to fund the renewal of our ageing infrastructure and have the roads, prisons, schools and hospitals we needed, we would have to think differently in respect of capital funding. He called his idea the Private Finance Initiative. Under PFI, the government would not borrow money and swamp what used to be called the Public Sector Borrowing Requirement, PSBR, but would instead ask the private sector to create transactions off balance sheets. They would design, build, finance and operate facilities and lease them back to the public sector over a long period, hence being able to draw money down just like we do for a mortgage when buying a house. The private sector would take the risks of owning and operating an estate, guaranteeing day one quality throughout the period of the concession, normally 25 to 40 years. I pricked up my ears because, forgetting the finance stuff, the F in PFI, this seemed to get the drivers right in that the builder had to design and construct a quality facility so that it would be easier to look after. It would be the constructor's facility so they had better do a good job because any trouble would belong to them down the line. People also tend to act better in longer term relationships rather than the short term bunk ups that are construction only contracts, where builders generally hand over the keys, run for it and then argue afterwards about the defects as well as the final accounts. Major's deal made sense to me that autumn day and I was very receptive to something different as we were getting disillusioned with the traditional construction industry. So was Sir Michael Latham for his report to Major called Trusting the Team slated the industry and called for wholesale change in attitudes and practices. Putting these two things together might just keep us interested in staying with construction but it was to be a long haul. I didn't know just how long. We worked hard at understanding Latham's single-team approach and the concept of partnering rather than fighting. We had become good at commercial brawling, now we had to get good at trusting and collaborating. Once more it was made clear and brought to life for me by an illustrative story, 
this time from a guy called Sir John Harvey Jones. Harvey Jones had run ICI through the mid-80s, but had retired and was now on the telly as a forerunner of Alan Sugar and his show The Apprentice. Sir John's reality offering was called Troubleshooter, which involved him going into alien businesses to sort them out. He presented our Humbasar Tech Award for Outstanding Investor in People, and in the course of that evening described planning as a completely unnatural process whereby success or failure is preceded by a period of angst and stress, whereas outcomes are better, coming as a complete surprise. Some of those dining with me that evening were a little confused at this, coming from the most renowned businessman in the country, but I understood that he was trying to get us to stop overthinking and overplanning. I was impressed and went straight out and bought his book, Managing to Survive. It was a weighty beast of a book, and I was never going to read all of it, but one story about my industry stood out. It was a sad tale of failure that had put a black mark on the old troubleshooter's CV. You learn so much from failure, and it's so much better when you learn from those of other people rather than your own. My recollection of the story is worth recounting, for it changed the sewer construction business. ICI was developing a chemical product in competition with the Japanese. R&D was neck and neck, and first to the market would be the winner. It was going to be down to the construction of a bespoke chemical plant, one here in the northeast and one in Japan. Sir John was hopeful when his project commenced six months before the Japanese competitors, but when they completed six months earlier than ICI, taking one year less on site, with a better functioning plant, he was gutted and made it his business to find out why. What he found was a story of how the construction industries in the UK and Japan operated entirely differently. Here, ICI appointed a lead engineer then hired consultants to provide the technical support in commercial, structural, mechanical and electrical engineering, and then that group tendered to acquire the main contractor, who in turn brought along the critical specialist subcontractors. In Japan, prior to the first stroke of the designer's pen, the full team of all those who would have meaningful input into the project was assembled. This team was located in a single office to aid communication and teamwork whereas in the UK, the elements were spread all over the country and meetings were called as necessary. In Japan, the single team worked together on the design, the cost model, the programme of work, the risks, etc., and did not set foot on the site until all these were completed coherently. They then moved the whole team of what were then stakeholders with ownership on site to build it. In the UK, however, we practised fast track, whereby once an element was ready, i.e. foundations, it was sent into construction, while subsequent elements, i.e. superstructure, were still in design and being costed. This all made it obvious to Harvey Jones why he and ICI started six months earlier, but finished six months later with an inferior product, and two years of commercial and legal arguments that nobody won apart from the lawyers and claims consultants. He was scathing about the British construction industry, as was Sir Michael Latham, as was I. I resolved there and then 
that we would no longer participate in this undignified and customer abusive bun fight, but wait until we had sophisticated clients who knew what a good job looked like and were prepared to pay for it. This was to come from single team partnering or the advent of PFI where it should be structurally ingrained, or so I thought. The mid-90s had us flirting with all this, a failed attempt to create a PFI at Hull Royal Infirmary, some pretend partnering and the hurtful reshaping of our team where all those who only wanted to practice traditional construction contracting had to go. This included trusted friends and long-term colleagues who just couldn't buy into my vision that in the future we would no longer be a construction company but a new age developer. I tried to explain to them that in any jungle it is best to be top of the food chain and in the construction jungle main contractors and subcontractors were anything but that. We needed to be a developer but were very late to the party with the powerful traditional ones having the funds, the land and above all the 10,000 hours experience and networks we didn't have. What John Major had provided however was the opportunity to become a very special type of developer working with the public sector to create much needed infrastructure for the future. No matter how I tried I couldn't get the idea out of my head during those years of the mid 90s even though it quite often felt like a pipe dream. Then, one day in the summer of 1998, I got a telephone call that would change my career and the fortunes of our company. Much changed in 1997. Tony Blair and New Labour had won a landslide election victory with his three priorities of education, education and education. I expected this to be the death knell of the PFI, but it was the opposite and his government put their foot on the gas, particularly in their priority area of schools. The county of Humberside had been abolished and replaced by two new unitary authorities in Hull and the large sprawling East Riding of Yorkshire Council. The call was from an officer of the new Hull City Council called Christine Parker who I knew from the Humberside days from building schools with her. This petite, slim, white-haired lady was a bit of a fan of ours because we always did things right on site, causing her no hassle. On this occasion, her normally calm, circumspect voice sounded marginally more excited. I have a project on my desk here in front of me that must be of interest to you, she declared. It's a new primary school for Victoria Dock, but it's not a traditional D&B. It is a pilot for a new design, build, finance and operate model called PFI that the government has granted Hull. She then stopped the professional imparting of information to lower her voice to a gossipy whisper. I think John Prescott has gone in to see his friend Gordon Brown because we are an informal pilot not like the other two. He's been promising a school on this new estate so his constituents don't have to send their children across the A63 to Craven Street. I know you can build schools. I know you now have a facilities management operation. And I know you must be up for investment because I have heard about your health PFI that didn't come off. Thank God for gossips, I thought. But then she reverted to formal mode. It will be tendered, of course. Can I send you the details? Yes, of course, Chris, 
Thank you for thinking of us. Then, as an afterthought, she added almost apologetically, It will also be quite high profile and maybe rather controversial. What did she know that I didn't? I smiled as I put the phone down. I don't know who else she would be thinking of to tender this, I thought. I had been waiting five years for this call and she was right that we were prepared and ready for it. I was also confident that none of the big boys would want to come up the M1 and turn right to Hull to compete with us on a little primary school like this. This was our big chance and I knew it. I found out later that my good friend Charlie Spencer's young company had also bid for what was an unusual opportunity back then, but there cannot have been many more and we became preferred bidder, entering negotiation with the council's team and their advisers, Eversheds and Deloitte. The big issue was that there were no standard contract terms and conditions as this was a groundbreaking pilot that quickly overtook the official schemes to be out there on its own. Jeff Gordon and Graham Atkins attended one meeting after another over the months, most of them good-natured and amicable, some not, as we all realised that what was agreed would not only have to be lived with for 25 years, but might be subject to wider, deeper and more mischievous scrutiny. The hard slog ended with financial close in the spring of 1998 on one final surprising hurdle for us to overcome. Our bank, HSBC, changed its mind and refused to finance this as a ring fence project off balance sheet with the secure 25-year income stream as collateral. They now wanted it as normal debt finance. This was a blur and we quickly had to change banks to the Bank of Scotland who were to assume all of our banking affairs. This demonstrates that not many participants really knew what they were doing and so were neither comfortable nor confident in this new game but we made the whole thing as fresh and as exciting as we could. Jeff Gordon had bought a pioneering computer-aided design CAD software package called Reflex to us. Developed by a boffin in his back bedroom, but then dismissed after a trial with Balfabiti, it created 3D models with realistic rendering and spectacular fly-throughs. It was way ahead of its time. I liked it, and it became the innovative cornerstone of a commercial development partnership I was creating with Hull City Council. We donated the kit. They offered a young CAD technician called Paul Brook, and in short order, we had a new business called Sewell VR. This immediately had a full 3D model of the new school, and Paul worked with stakeholders, including the community, to consult on design decisions, which was pretty mind-blowing at the time. I vividly remember one design session where the external colours were being trialled and as soon as he changed everything to a bright yellow, we knew that that was it. Yellow windows, shutters, gutters and faces made everything feel so fresh and hopeful. With the strapline, a bright new future for our children, easy to adopt. As an important aside, I am sure the virtual reality image of what a new super stadium could look like that we created for the then Tigers owner David Lloyd, subsequently printed on the front page of the Hull Daily Mail, 
put important pressure on the newly enriched council with its millions of pounds from selling a majority stake in its municipal telecoms company KC to build a new ground for Hull City. As Chamber President, I exchanged letters with the then council leader Pat Doyle. I said that a new community stadium in West Hull would be good use for a portion of this windfall, but he responded that supporting professional sports clubs was not the remit of a local authority. Thankfully, he relented and the new 25,000 seat KC Stadium was built not long after. I separately had talks with Adam Pearson, then still with Leeds United as commercial director, about his takeover of Hull City and whether I could help by representing him at the creditors' meeting of the previous regime, which had gone bust. Secret meetings on the A1 and all that. We weren't personally a match made in heaven but I did want him to build a stadium and a club that would be worthy of the Premier League. Back on Victoria Dock, the build of what was effectively a huge bungalow to blend into the Victoria Dock estate landscape was uncomplicated, but with high quality specifications, such as a state-of-the-art groundwood floor in the hall, as well as quality faced brickwork rather than the normal painted blockwork. The community was invited to come on site and get involved in the creation of their new facility so that they all felt like stakeholders from the off and the project was completed by Christmas 1998. This had overtaken the official government pathfinder schemes and was to become the first PFI school in the country to open its doors on the first day of term in January 1999. In the days prior to the opening, I got to know what Chris Parker meant when she intimated that the project would not be without controversy. I was asked to go on a BBC television programme that I thought was a celebration of a UK first, but I was railroaded into a debate with the National Union of Teachers who were ideologically opposed to what we thought was a local achievement, but they considered a capitalist abomination. I made the case that without this type of delivery, it was highly unlikely that there would be any form of school on Victoria Dock right now, let alone a high quality one for staff and pupils who could concentrate on education whilst we looked after everything else. This was a true public-private sector partnership, PPP, with a local company capturing wealth for the local community and providing quality jobs and work role models within it. We would also take a place on the Board of Governors to help run the school and grant a dividend back if budgets were beaten and there were gains to share. Nothing I said made the slightest difference to my opponent, who, like anybody with preconceived ideas, was not open to any logical, evidenced arguments contrary to their dogma. I was, however, greatly heartened by the overwhelming support I received from staff pupils, governors and the community of Victoria Dock. This made me even more determined to make this a runaway success. And a runaway success is what it proved to be, with local, regional and national awards, visits from no less than four Secretaries of State for Education and a host of celebrities from Charlie Dimmock to David Putnam. Looking back, the whole thing got a bit showbiz and this brought its detractors as well as admirers. The opening itself was all about the Deputy Prime Minister and local MP John Prescott, who was in fine form with staff, kids and parents alike, 
lifting a red-haired little girl in his arms to pull the cord on the curtains of the brass plaque in the hall like any good politician would. I was a bit scared of John in those days, as he could be bipolar in his attitude towards me, but this day he had me as good Paul, embarrassingly personalising the whole achievement to the only one he knew. Paul has brought us to this stage. Paul has assured us that this is well built and we can see this now. Paul will look after it because we know where he lives. Geez, John, give us a break. But he was right about you can trust a local company and I employed this piece of wisdom many times in the future. The absence of key representatives from Hull City Council indicated that they didn't like it very much, a situation which would prevail into the future. They were still of a we own and run the city mindset, rather than accepting that they were just the local government elements. It would be a few years yet before austerity would turn the funding tap down to a trickle and they would have to collaborate to find out what PPP really meant. As the bill moved into its operational phase, it was decided that site manager Carl Sorrell would stay on the site for six months after completion to be its first facilities manager. This worked because he had put the thing together so he knew his way around every aspect of the building, but it also fostered great relationships with the school and community. The whole thing was working a treat and the school was so popular that we carried out two extensions over the next four years to meet demand and acquired the nursery school business next door to create little learners and almost a through school. The community urges to look at continuity at the other end of the age scale to make a 0 to 16 years offer, but the local authority weren't too keen on that idea, despite commissioning an inquiry to placate local parents. Frustratingly, nothing came along in the years immediately after the triumph of Victoria Dock Primary School. Unbelievably, we were not even considered for the PFI at Bridlington School soon after, a disengaged state with my own East Riding local authority, which would last the rest of my career. Big national company Jarvis really messed up at Brillington, and it would be easy to gloat if it was not for the disadvantage to the pupils and the staff up there, and a missed opportunity to capture wealth for our local economy. Our PPP work was restricted to helping Age Concern create a pioneering new healthy living centre on Porter Street in Hull, and getting involved with the New Deal for Communities programme of new labour that was to concentrate on the 16 worst sink estates in the country to try and make a difference. This one was on Preston Road to the east of the city, again in the constituency of the Deputy Prime Minister, John Prescott. I was asked to sit on the shadow board, which I gladly did, and I liked the people, even though there was much anger and disengagement with the authorities. What we found was really lacking among those streets and groves was a demonstrable centre of the community, it being all houses, chimney pots, roads and verges, but with no community facilities. The main aspiration of the residents, therefore, was to have a new village centre for the Preston Road area. They needed a physical manifestation of regeneration to go with all the social programmes that were being enacted, and they wanted me to organise it. I let them down gently and told them that this would not be possible. Public procurement rules meant that as a significant capital spend, it would require an open tender 
advertised throughout the EU and free from the influence of anybody like me who sat on their board. We'll come off the board then, was the earthy wisdom of their response. We would sooner have you creating a centre for us than sat talking with us in meetings. We both had our way. With me no longer a board member, Sewell bid and won the privilege of being the development partner for their big project. In the design stage, we had a bit of help from an unexpected source. As a board and development partnership, we were gathered at one of the road bridges over the Balmston drain, waiting for a party led by John Prescott to walk down the side of the waterway from the next bridge to meet us. For some reason, we started to walk on the drainside path towards them, making it look like a scene from the gunfight at the OK Corral. Then it happened. A few residents had come to their front doors to see what was going on with this bizarre scene, and one spotted his local MP. This middle-aged man with night vests strapped in by his braces, keeping his baggy trousers in place a la my dad, started shouting. Prescott! I want a word with you, he bellowed, walking down the path to his front gate. Prescott, are you hearing me? The Deputy Prime Minister carried on walking, ignoring him. We never see you, and when we do, you ignore us. The irate constituent was now out of his garden, striding towards us and the official party beyond. I thought the two policemen would take charge of the situation that was obviously escalating, but they acted as if nothing was happening. Prescott, he bellowed again when he was level with me. I grabbed him as gently as I could. Hey, now then, what's up, I said. It was getting between embarrassing and dangerous. He's fucking up, that's what's up. He allowed me to restrain him gently, showing no aggression towards me, only the party now passing, which was still acting as if they were oblivious of him. Now then, I said, I'm sure he'll talk to you if you are civil, so let's just calm down. I held him and looked appealingly at our two fearless crime fighters for some assistance. They relented and came over and took on the restraining duties. I followed our party, who followed the official party into one of the estate's houses being used as offices. I was the last one in and the dozen or so people before me were settling down for the meeting. Prescott was accompanied by a big man of his own age and build, but with fair hair and a trendy collarless shirt under a nice arty jacket. Well done there, Paul, John said, referring to his assailants. We would make a good team. You will come and I'll slot them. I don't know anything about rugby league, but assumed his vernacular referred to the local passion. He motioned towards his hitherto anonymous guest, Meet Richard Rogers. I was blindsided and stunned for an instance. The only Richard Rogers I knew was the most famous architect in the world. He threw a Terminal 5, the Lloyds Building, Billingsgate Market, the River Cafe, Reuters. But what would he be doing walking down the bank of Preston Road Drain? Do you know who he is, John said, allowing ignorance to be revealed? I do, I said. I did my design dissertation on him at university, the Pompidou Centre and your work with Norman Foster, I said, turning to shake Richard's hand. Oh good, the iconic architect said. 
Not really, I replied. I got a seriously crap mark. He laughed out loud. Preston Road deserves the best, and Richard is the best architect I know, the Deputy Prime Minister interjected. He's the best architect anybody knows. I tried to end the exchange with sycophancy. We sat and talked of the waterways on the estate being a positive amenity rather than a danger as the residents saw them at the time. I smiled to myself, remembering that when Dave CJ had his speedboat nicked from his house in South Cave, the police eventually found it floating serenely on the very drain we were discussing. That's amenity use, I thought. Richard talked of how the spaces we would create needed people to bring them alive. The design must be attractive to the locals, so consultation and engagement with the community was vital. I offered his practice the commission, but they were busy in Paris, Tokyo and Sydney, so Chris Gowers, a local architect, stepped in and did a brilliant job liaising with the residents of East Hull. The new Preston Road Village Centre went on what was called the Boots Triangle, bounded by three roads, including Preston Road. The centrepiece was the Freedom Centre, as the residents wanted to call it, forming the backdrop of the square with an atrium, community cafe, library, hairdressing salon, NHS minor injuries unit, concert hall with a traditional stage, event space, gym, offices and an education centre on the second and third floors. A performing arts centre, in front of the social service offices and a community police station form the western area to the apex of the triangle. The eastern aspect was a large co-op convenience store with offices above and the front of the main road was a childcare centre of excellence with a lovely conical tiled roof. Outside the centre square we provided a youth centre and a horticultural centre. An East Hull company had created the centre that the community craved and we left the project proud of what we had delivered with them and for them. No F in PFI involved, but certainly the partnership P in PPP. I was called the PFI pioneer at the PFI Awards in London and subsequently in the press, but PPP pioneer is more accurate and what I'd prefer. The public-private partnerships that I am involved with go and get the finance needed from the best appropriate source available in order to make the project happen, but to make people's lives better rather than for an investment return. The odds are that the money is being borrowed from somewhere whether people like it or not. I remember agreeing all this in a conversation at dinner with a young, up-and-coming advisor to the Chancellor of the Exchequer called Ed Bowles. I wonder what happened to him. The Head of Capital Programmes for the Department of Education and Skills, Ken Beaton, came up to Hull to see what we were doing. He was impressed enough to ask me to sit on a working party in London that was looking at the country's biggest ever investment in education. Working title, Building Schools for the Future. The Treasury was setting aside £35 billion to renew the secondary school estate and I was to add a developer and operator's practical view to the discussions. Unfortunately, I found that group was dominated by educationalists and architects with little interest in anything other than education theory and arty design, so I quit after a few miserable unproductive stays in London. 
BSF turned out to be a bit like that, I think. The big problem being that people like this pontificated and theorised so much in their endless meetings that when the financial crash brought the Tories in austerity, Michael Gove cancelled BSF before it really got going. Developments, like most opportunities, have a window in time, and as many fall by the wayside through being timed out than from a poor business case. It should be ready, aim, fire, but my friends in London and many others are aim, 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 oops, the target's gone. In fact, with some stuff, it has to be ready, fire, fire, fire to win. Thank God our esteemed consortium in Hull got their skates on and beat the Gove chop. Just. We bid BSF in North Lincolnshire and lost one we thought we were nailed on to win. It is in such circumstances that I go into my failure mindset, which insists that failure always precedes success. Big failure precedes big success. So you need just to fail sooner to succeed quicker. Job done. My American biz guru hero, Tom Peters, says that you should praise magnificent failures and punish mediocre success if you really want to succeed in business. And we've even tagged opportunities, Project Magnificent Failure, in the past. Believe you me, I have failed more times than I have succeeded. That's what happens when you try stuff on the entrepreneurial journey. At £400 million to be spent and 21 schools to build, Hull BSF would be too big for us to bid on our own. So Paul Brook took the lessons from our failure in North Links and set about putting an appropriate consortium together. We couldn't win without one of the big boys in tour and worked on the basis that any of the multinationals in bed with Sewell would have a huge advantage in Hull. And so it worked out. The esteemed consortium of Sewell Group Robertson from Scotland and Morgan Sindel from Garforth in Leeds was formed. I was happy about this. Morgan Sindel is a derivative of Fairclough Building where I started my career with Rodney Anderson, Richard Clough et al and I had spent time working in the Garforth office. This made it feel like it was meant to be. And it was, because we won. I give Sewell Construction the challenge of proving that they were better than the big boys. And they did just that, with the delivery of the superb Thomas Ferrans Academy, Newland School for Girls, Endike, Frederick Holmes, Kingswood, and the most difficult and risky of all, Mallet Lambert, where £25 million was spent on refurbishing and remodelling a school with its 1,500 pupils still in it. To make sure we left a legacy beyond the buildings, we converted a storage shed on Geneva Way into a skills academy where over a thousand kids who were having their school renewed got a taste of the construction skills needed to do it. The funding was a mix of mainstream and PFI with Morgan Sindel rather than us, the PFI pioneers, taking care of all that. Did they do a better job? Or have Robertson's done better on the facilities management than Sewell would have done? Not a chance but I'm biased. Here I do think Sewell Construction played in the Premier League, in accordance with our investors in people aspiration of the 90s, and that we played really well. What did go a bit wrong was the cultural fit between the consortium partners. 
My feeling was that some of our bid promises were not being properly delivered by our partners in our home city and that this might affect our brand. My mantra, keep your promises, run towards your problems, was being breached and I didn't like it. Enter a peacemaker, brought in by Hull City Council to be the independent chair of esteem, a handsome white-haired Londoner called Richard King, who by the most delicious of coincidences is also the UK CEO of the Tom Peters Company. If I didn't believe in serendipity before writing this book, I do now. If I didn't believe that when searching for excellence, hard is soft and soft is hard, as Tom says, I do now. If I didn't believe that success is largely on how you deal with people, I do now. I thank Tom Peters and his UK CEO for they have taught me much. In late 2002, I was chuffed that our local bondholders scheme that I had helped to form had chosen to hold one of its influential breakfasts at our newly opened Age Concern Healthy Living Centre. And given the health aspects of the scheme, the NHS were there presenting in the form of Primary Care Trust PCT Chief, Richard Banyard. This was when he announced that Hull was to be one of 42 areas in the country to be granted Local Improvement Finance Trust lift status to reinvigorate the primary care estates. He showed some images of current GP facilities that would have been a disgrace to a third world nation, never mind a G8 wealthy one. The lift scheme would be a variation on a PFI in that the Special Purpose Vehicle SPV would be jointly owned between the public and private sector, making it a legally structured PPP, thus removing the accusation that PFI was the public sector selling the family silver to the private sector. Complete transparency would be assured by public sector nominees sitting on the board of directors. The board would have an independent chair to ensure complete propriety. I thought it was a fabulous idea, with the kind of collaboration that was just what was needed in this arena to make things fly. Richard Banyard went on to say that businesses would be invited to bid to become the private sector partner, hold 60% of the shares and run these new lift companies, which would have exclusivity to own and operate the NHS primary care estate in their designated area. Ours, of course, being within the boundaries of Hull. Then he dropped his bombshell. Of course it will be a national name that comes to partner with us here, and we hope to attract a big one. This will go out for EU-wide procurement, and I'm sorry that no local company will have what's needed to succeed. This particular PFI pioneer, with hugely successful schemes operating in Hull and York, and in whose recent creation he was spouting this bollocks, was not pleased. He reminded me of that twat Franny gloating in front of Mum with his 11 plus result that got me, and then subsequently him, a slap. I didn't think it was appropriate to go and give Richard Banyard a slap, but I did approach him afterwards and said that I thought he was wrong with regard to the capability of local companies to win and that we must be given a fair chance. We were given a chance and wrong he was proved to be for we won hands down. A pivotal moment, we learned in retrospect, was in the final presentation of the three bidders to the wider client partner body at Hull University. I knew Hull PCT Chief Executive Chris Long, 
Chair Cathlavery and Director of Finance Alan Barton, with whom I had completed the Common Purpose Programme and admired all of them as just the type of people I would want to go into partnership with. To be good productive partners, particularly in the public sector, you need to be represented by open-minded, confident people who are comfortable in their own skin. The whole PCT was certainly that, and would make the best of partners. I am told that when I started my closing address with, this is not about a set of shiny new buildings, it is about the health of the people of Hull. It was effectively all over, and we were the private sector partner in the shiny new Hull Lift Company. This, I guess, was because I made it about a higher purpose and a set of values, above the financial legal transactions that had been dragging on for the best part of a year. I was keen that we joined a suite of city companies that were operating back then, City Vision, City Image, City Build, City Safe, etc. I wanted them to be joined by City Care, and indeed they were. City Care has survived them all and has changed the landscape of the primary care estate to give Hull one of the best in the country, with 13 stunning health centres, built well and kept at day one quality as required by this model. We have raised the finance to do this by invoking the F in PFI, taking the responsibility for all matters related to the estate and allowing the NHS to do what it does best, care for patients. The most recent lift building is the award-winning Jean Bishop Integrated Care Centre, which is re-engineering services for the benefit of older people. I have known Hull's famous Bee Lady for years, since we created the Age Concern Healthy Living Centre almost 20 years ago, and she was rattling her tin for loose change even then, way before she won a Pride of Britain for her fundraising. I was delighted when everybody agreed we would name this wonderful new facility in East Hull, in her honour. CityCare is now a nationally recognised exemplar that has reshaped the primary care estate in Hull, just as esteem has in secondary education, and as the Preston Road NDC did for that community. I love this stuff, and I'm so proud of my company's contribution since the turn of the millennium, whether invoking the F in PFI or not.